Hello, and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. I am Stephen P. Wood, your host for today's session. I'm a critical care and emergency medicine nurse practitioner and World Extreme Medicine Fellow, and I'm very excited to have you joining us today. I'm excited to introduce today's guest, Dr. Zane Horowitz. He is a professor of emergency medicine at Oregon Health and Science University and the Associate Medical Director of the Oregon, Alaska, and Guam Poison Center. Welcome, Dr. Horowitz. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. And today we're going to talk mushrooms. Um, there are a lot of people that are out gathering mushrooms. There are a lot of people that encounter mushrooms, uh, you know, during their explorations and hikes. And I thought it was an important topic for us uh, to review. And specifically, we're going to talk about some toxic mushrooms, some of the more important species. Uh, we'll explore some of the signs and symptoms and management of, of uh, mushroom exposure. Um, and hopefully we'll also talk about a little bit about mushroom identification uh, and, you know, methods for identifying mushrooms and the difficulty uh, sometimes that people can encounter. Uh, so without further ado, Dr. Horowitz, tell us a little bit about your background um, and your interest in mushrooms. Well, great. Yeah, I've been working in medical toxicology for decades. Um, I was originally at the uh, California Davis, and we saw a fair bit of mushroom hunters up in Sierras uh, around there. But I moved uh, here to Portland about 25 years ago, and with the wetter climate, um, as is so well known, and a lot of amateur um, back-to-earth types in the Portland area and throughout Oregon, uh, we started you know, seeing and getting much more interested in um, mushrooms, both ones that are edible and tasty and ones that sometimes cause uh, significant medical problems. Um, I could, I could start off talking about one that many people probably don't know that much about, but it's sort of... Uh, a problem mostly in Northwest. I think the vast majority of cases in the United States happen in the state of Oregon. We get a smattering in Washington and maybe even British Columbia has had a, a few of these. But many years ago, there was this popular article written actually in the New Yorker magazine about hunting for the American Matsutake, which is an edible mushroom, which is very tasty. Um, and if you go to the supermarket, try to buy it, it's actually quite expensive, during, even during the mushroom hunting season, which is in the fall, typically around September. So a lot of people, after reading that, got an idea for like a eco-vacation to come to Oregon and go looking around the woods and mountains for this really tasty mushroom. The problem is, it looks nearly identical to a really toxic but little-known mushroom called the Smith mushroom or the Amanita Smithiana mushroom. They, they kind of grow in the same environment. They look pretty much the same. They're kind of a beige-colored mushroom. Um, it really takes a, a, tr a true expert to, to really tell them apart. And every year we, we get pools of people, sometimes clusters of people working together or hunting and foraging together. We mistakenly eat the Smith mushroom, the Amanita Smithiana mushroom. And the problem with this mushroom is it very insidiously causes renal failure. Um, and it doesn't have this classic sort of warning signs that some of the other mushrooms we might talk about, which is sort of this delayed uh, onset of nausea 
and vomiting. Um, so the classic bad mushroom in North America is the Amanita phylloides, a different species that causes liver failure. And sort of the classic, you know, saying is if you wait, if your symptoms begin six hours or later, then you need to worry because it could be this. Uh, the problem with the Amanita smithiana is sometimes symptoms occur before six hours. It's usually not immediate, but sometimes four hours or five hours, but definitely can occur before six hours with nausea and vomiting. And a lot of times it's, it's not really profound. It's something that most people would attribute to having eaten something wrong, a little bit of an upset stomach, and they may tough it out at home. And we've had a lot of cases of this where people just kind of waited a day or two or more before they finally couldn't put up with their GI complaints anymore. If they come in right away, usually their labs are normal. You treat them with the usual things you would treat someone for nausea and vomiting, but it's important to ask people in that season that they've been out foraging and what they were looking for. Um, if they were looking for the matsutake, our little antennas go up a little bit, and we start asking how sure are they, what they picked, was actually what they wanted. Um, and certainly with the onset of a GI illness, soon after eating them, we worry and we watch them. If we were to follow these people over the course of like the next three or four days, we would see their creatinine go up a point a day. It would go from one to two uh, and three and four. And we've had cases where it's gone as high as 10 before they were frankly uremic um, and needed to be dialyzed. The except for giving fluids and waiting it out, there isn't any antidote for this mushroom. Uh, the toxin involved is pentanoic acid, which is hard to find and impossible to assay for. Um, and there's no specific antidote or treatment. So all you can do is kind of rehydrate people and, and wait for, you know, which way they're going to go. Are they just going to get a little sick and get better with some GI symptoms of mild AKI? Or are they going to progress the forward? Uh, renal failure and need dialysis and so that's the that's the problem with uh assessing and, and treating these folks so as a provider especially uh, it's especially important if you're working in emergency medicine or intensive care or any of those kind of fields to kind of understand what's available uh, in your local area. And that's a mushroom that I certainly, being from the Northeast, am not familiar with. Mm -hmm. uh, but I guess it's important to kind of, you know, one, you have to have a suspicion for these kind of things um, when people are presenting with these types of, you know, what are commonly GI ailments. Um, and I guess it probably would also help to kind of know what species are in your area and when people are foraging for these mushrooms. Um, so specifically for that mushroom, what's the season that people are out there looking for this mushroom? And, uh, you know, what's, what's the time frame that, you know, people are out there foraging? Um, it's usually in mid-September, usually after the first set of kind of rainy days. They tend to grow. Um, they tend to grow a little bit at altitude, so they're not down here at uh, sea level. They're not along the coast. They're mostly up in the Cascades, which is the mountain range just east of us. Um, and people who have their favorite Matsutake hunting grounds, which, which some people do, find these things grow side by side in the same clusters. They look almost identical. 
um, to um, a less than sophisticated uh, expert. Um, the other interesting thing, I know you asked to address some sort of international things, but we were written a case report of this, I don't know, a dozen years or so ago. And then we started getting uh, letters and emails uh, from around the world. And there were similar mushrooms that caused renal failure um, in France and Italy and Spain and Japan. And they're all of the Amanita group, but there are other uh, subspecies like the Amanita proxima and the Amanita abrupta. And, you know, we still get notices or see uh, articles that this particular renal failure inducing subspecies of Amanita mushrooms is not just limited here in the Pacific Northwest, but elsewhere. And my understanding is it's pretty common, actually, for these non-toxic and toxic mushrooms to grow in proximity to each other. Is that is that true for most of these mushrooms? Yes. I mean, for all, all of these, um, people almost always are foraging for something they think is an edible mushroom. Um, and a lot of, you know, they're taught by their friends, their family, their grandmother, that this is the really good mushroom. And they go out and they pick it and they just happen to pick the wrong species this year whenever the event occurs is that something that you find common as well that identification is really kind of the primary reason people get exposed to these or is it people just seeing a mushroom and saying well that looks tasty i'm going to eat it well i think experts there's sort of two types of those there are people who may have taken a mycology course or gone out with other people who they consider to be competent mushroom foragers and they feel pretty comfortable because they've been doing it year after year. And even those folks make make mistakes. To me, I mean, our experts, is we, we do have a, a small group of uh, trained mycologists who have taken college-level courses who sometimes even use like a, a phase microscope to look at the mushrooms, not just pictures of the mushrooms, to try to identify them. Um, those I consider, you know, the true experts. Those folks are probably not likely to make a mistake. But, I mean, every year for us, Pacific Northwest, the Matsutake season is pretty sort of September, October, maybe a little bit into November. Um, and that's when we tend to have these clusters of, of cases. I would be super cautious if I was doing this for the first time or even the fifth time if you haven't really worked with somebody who really knows what what they're looking for yeah i think i think that's probably the most important lesson is that um these are these are difficult to identify and and even the most expert of people use multiple resources to identify those mushrooms so i want to kind of take a page out of the book of the fbi and then let's talk about kind of some of the quote unquote, mushroom most wanted. Uh, so what are some of the maybe top five most toxic mushrooms that, uh, you know, people should be aware of? And we we'll, can briefly talk about a little bit, maybe about one or two of those most important amongst those. Uh, and we'll talk about, you know, signs, symptoms and management. But what would you say some of the, maybe you know, if we can come up with a list of top five, and then we'll pick the top two from there. Yeah. Well, clearly, um, you know, the most toxic mushroom in the United States, in North America, and probably around the world is the Amanita phylloides. Um, it contains something called an amanitin toxin, which is a liver failure inducing toxin. 
There's a half a dozen other species that also uh, have been associated with liver failure. Some of them, um, of them are Amanita uh, subspecies like Verona and Verosa um, and a couple of others, but there's also a couple of different species like Lepiota species that also sometimes do this and report it around, around the world. That, that one is clearly the number one um, cause of serious medical uh, consequences and time to time fatalities. I mean, historically, about five to 10% of people worldwide, you know, especially in places where the trip to definitive care is a long one, um, you know, that people can die from Amanita phylloides poisoning. It's again, this is one where the six hour rule tends to apply. Usually people have eaten it and we've interviewed people and they've said, I went out and I picked this mushroom and that was the best omelet I ever made. You know, I chopped it up. I had some eggs and it was like wonderful. And I felt great until about six hours later when I started vomiting and it wouldn't stop. And then I started having profound diarrhea, which is part and parcel of, of this, which is a little bit different than the, the other Amanita. Um, and they just get so sick within the first six to eight hours that they, they, they can't handle it at home and they make their way to health care. Um, so that's the number one. We have a couple of things we can do for that one um, early on. It turns out that the Amanitin is taken up into the liver by a unique transporter called the oat transporter, organic acid transporter, a specific subtype of that. And there's a couple of both pharmaceutical preparations like penicillin that inhibit that's uptake and a couple of uh, nutraceuticals, if you will, preparations like silymarin, which is a derivative of milk thistle that can prevent it as well. Um, in this country, the pharmaceutical grade silabinin, the derivative of milk thistle, is not available or approved. Um, in Europe, especially in Germany, where it's made, Central Europe, uh, they do treat in almost all cases with IV silabinin, uh, which is generally available. In this country, sometimes we can obtain it as a, a, a individual independent new drug on a research study, um, or sometimes people just go down to the health food store, uh, which we've done, uh, and gotten oral milk thistle extract, which is basically silymarin, kind of the crude version of it, and have used that orally. Um, it's a completely benign nutrient that some people take for, quote, liver health. Uh, we're not in the habit of prescribing too many herbal medicines to folks, but this is one of the ones which we sometimes uh, acquiesce to. Probably, all in all, the penicillin probably works the best, but you have to use large doses, like 4 million units every four hours, at least for the first 24 hours, um, in order to block that amanitin from getting inside your liver. If they show up too late, and, and people do, they can wait it out a day or so, probably after 24 hours, pretty much all of that amanitin's in the liver, and it's starting to inhibit RNA polymerase too, which is important to make proteins in, uh, inside the liver, and then it, it looks almost like a typical like acetaminophen or Tylenol poisoning where the liver's function tests, the transaminases tend to rise over the next 
two to three days, the bilirubin goes up, the INR goes up, and they can become encephalopathic with uh, uh, hyperaminemia as well. Um, at that point, it's just what we do for everybody with supportive care for liver failure. And a few of them cases have gone on to require uh, liver transplant. In fact, one, one of the first cases I was involved with was in the early days of in UC Davis, where a family came in after eating these and uh, was one of the first children um, who got sick enough to require a liver transplant back then in the mid-80s. So there's our number one, and I think that's, you know, Amanita phylloides is what most people are familiar with. Um, I, you know, uh, all Americans, we love to hear that an antibiotic can be used for something. We, as you know, we love to give our antibiotics. So penicillin is certainly one of those agents. That's new news to me that milk thistle extract is a possible, um, you know, uh, pharmaceutical uh, that you can use for this. And that's you know, something I think that uh, to keep in our back pocket for sure for emergency medicine and uh, intensive care providers. What about some of the, you know, when I worked at the Poison Center here in Masson, Rhode Island, this is, you know, more than a decade ago, uh, but we frequently, you know, would get calls for people who, especially kids, eat a, eat a mushroom that they found in the woods. And we were recommending at that time, you know, Ipecac, which has really lost favor um, for, you know, the um, gastric evacuation. Is there any role for in inducing emesis in these ingestions if they're found early? No, um, not not really. Um, and if you look at, like, the total aggregate poison center calls, if you look back 20 years ago, we were giving out 100,000 cases of Ipecac. I think in the last year or so, it was down on, like, 16. First of all, I, I think for the most part, it's off the market. Um, people don't use it. It's not advisable that people keep it in their homes as it once was for uh, pediatricians to advise young uh, parents to keep it around in case the kids got into anything. Um, its efficacy is is, is limited, um, and I clearly can't think of a good scenario, especially with mushrooms or plants, where I would uh, use it. Part of it, reason is, you know, what we're looking for is do they get spontaneous GI symptoms and what's the time course from their last eating of the mushroom to that? So if it happens right away within one or two hours, usually we're reasonably well assured that it's probably just, you know, one of these non-toxic uh, mushrooms that cause some GI distress, but they'll get over it, whereas it happens later. Certainly after four hours in the Northwest and maybe after six hours in the rest of the country, that's sort of the ones where we're going to watch and give IV fluids to aggressively rehydrate and follow their chemistries, liver and uh, renal uh, functions uh, over the next 12 or 24 hours even, uh, depending on how they're going, trend them. Um, how about a role, is there a role for activated charcoal? That's another, you know, agent we like to use in acute poisoning. Is there any role for activated charcoal in these um, mushroom ingestions? Well, there may be with the amanitin-containing mushrooms, so the amanita phylloides. Like I say, it's taken up into the liver by this transport mechanism, but it's also excreted into the biliary tree, um, back into the GI tract, 
even though it's bound to a, a you know an amino acid like a glucuronide protein, it's cleaved by gut bacteria back into the original amanitin. So the thought is, if you give people what we refer to as multi-dose activated charcoal, frequent recurrent doses of charcoal, that'll help bind up the enterohepatic circulation that occurs with amanitin. Um, no one studied this. It makes sense theoretically on a pathophysiologic basis. Certainly charcoal is a relatively benign substance. It's not absorbed into our body. Um, it's not an expensive substance. It's pennies for a bottle. Um, so I, I think we would try to use it. I usually don't give it to people who are actively vomiting because I don't want them to aspirate. You know, but once that phase sort of quiets down, there's a quiescent phase uh, where you're just waiting to see which way liver functions are going. I, I think at that point in time, I think what we consider multi-dose activated charcoal, giving you know 25 to 50 grams every two to four hours, uh, depending on what the patient can tolerate for an adult, um, is a reasonable and uh, tactic to try to bind up that neurohepatic recirculation of the amanitin. And I think anyone who's ever given activated charcoal to an actively vomiting person generally does that only once before they realize how difficult it is to get activated charcoal out of everything. Um, but that's interesting to note that, uh, you know, activated charcoal might have a role and especially multi-dose activated charcoal, which you know, has has uh, some indications for a few handful of drugs. Um, this is certainly one to think about, um, you know, for a, a, a role for this drug. At least it makes sense from a pathophysiologic sense. So that's certainly something I think, you know, providers should be aware of. So that's our number one, Amanita phylloides. I think a lot of people are familiar with that. You know, it's kind of when you type in mush, toxic mushroom, that's generally the image that comes up, right, in our, our Google um, search. What are some of the other mushrooms uh, of concern, um, both here in the U.S. or if you have some international experience with some mushrooms just to think about or know about? So another one that's actually quite variable uh, in its presentation, both in the U.S. and Europe, is the Gyromitra esculenta and other species of Gyromitra mushrooms. Um, it contains the toxin Gyromitrin, which is quite interesting in how it works. Um, it's frequently confused with morels. In fact, it's called the false morel or the brain morel, and it looks like a crenulated brain if you've seen pictures of it. So people make mistakes hunting for this, looking for morels, which are not toxic and, and again, quite tasty. Um, and the gyrometrin that's in it has variable amounts. So in the Michigan area and around the Great Lakes, that's probably where they have the most of them. And you mentioned, what do we do for most kids who get into a backyard mushroom? Out west, if it's just really growing on the lawn, we tend to just kind of do callbacks to the poison center and watch them at home to see if they develop any symptoms. But in, I know in Michigan, they tend to send a, a lot of them in because they could be this gyrometrin, which has the highest concentrations of this monomethylhydrazine gyr, which if that sounds a little bit familiar, the hydrazine, that's the same thing. It's an INH, the tuberculosis drug, which is also a hydrazine. And it inhibits the vitamin B6 pathway to activate vitamin B6. And without active vitamin B6, you can't make GABA, which is an important uh, sedative neurotransmitter. 
So without GABA synthesis in place, just like someone who takes INH, they end up with not just seizures, but refractory seizures that often benzodiazepines do not work for, and you have to either give them barbiturates or, or intubate them and knock them out completely with propofol. Um, but the real key is to treat them. This one has an antidote we can use, which is vitamin B6 or pyridoxine. Um, pyridoxine comes in small amounts for like vitamin bags, rally bags, however you want to refer to them in emergency departments, but you need to use a lot more for a suspected gyrometrin ingestion. You need to use upwards of five grams and they tend to come in a hundred milligram little vial. So yeah, may need to use like 50 of those little um, small vials in order to adequately treat somebody who presents with a gyrometrin toxicity. I don't treat people who are asymptomatic, but if they do have growing agitation, um, tremulousness, and I, I think they're about to seize, or I think they're at risk of seizing, I, I would use it. And certainly if they seized. Sort of the good news is most North American varieties do not cause seizures. We did a look back of the National Poison Center data uh, with one of our fellows a few years ago, and there really wasn't any cases where there were certainly no deaths and there weren't any seizures either. In Europe, it's a little bit different story. Um, it's the same genus and species, and these mushrooms tend to be more problematic. They're banned in most countries, but they're actually a delicacy, especially in Scandinavian countries. Um, and there's a proper technique for cooking them that people should be aware of if they're traveling in those countries or eating out in a restaurant in one of those countries where they have a gyrometrin on the menu with whatever else is they have to be parboiled. And parboiled is you have to boil the mushroom in water, discard the water, and then boil it again. And the boiling of the water draws out the toxic element, the gyrometrin that's in the mushrooms and it can be eaten safely. And there are cases where people have developed mild liver failure, not quite like the Amanita phylloides liver failure, and seizures and tremulous and a variety of other things. It tends to be mostly in the areas around the southern Alps of uh, southern France and northern Italy, where a lot of these cases are and where people do forage for them on a, on a regular basis. That sounds like a risky adventure, um, almost like a puffer fish uh, kind of scenario. Uh, I, I think I'd stick with the morels to be, to be quite honest. It, uh, it sounds a little bit safer, albeit maybe more expensive. I know the cost of morels is astronomical, but, uh, when it comes to, you know, having a uh, status epilepticus, I think, uh, I, I would opt to pay a little extra cash. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and interesting, yeah, that, that pyridoxine, um, just as with INH, would be kind of the antidote with that. Um, you, you mentioned, there are they mostly benzodiazepine-resistant seizures? So you're looking phenobarbital and pyridoxine for the management of, of these types of exposures? Right. You know, getting down to, like, the pathophysiology is, in order for benzodiazepines to work at the GABA channel, um, you need to make GABA as well and because the hydrazines the monomethyl hydrazine which is gyrometrin versus or inh inhibit the production of gaba you don't have enough gaba at your gaba channels to actually make them work when you give them benzos phenobarb and other barbiturates and even propofol can overcome that by just directly 
activating that channel. And so you're, you, know, you can try a benzo, but it's probably not going to work. I wouldn't waste time going up and up and up. I would just move quickly up to phenobarb, I think is the drug. I think most of our physicians now are becoming more and more comfortable with as it's used in sort of a, um, alcohol withdrawal syndrome uh, for some folks. Yeah, I think, you know, phenobarbital is a drug that um, we saw, uh, you know, kind of vanish from the, um, our, you know, pharmacologic, um, uh, you know, uh, from pharmaceuticals that we would use fairly frequently. But I think you're seeing a lot of it come back uh, for the management of alcohol withdrawal, where it seems to be pretty safe, pretty effective for the management of alcohol withdrawal. Um, and maybe even a, a better safety profile than benzodiazepines. At least there are some providers that that feel that. I'm actually among among them that have kind of turned to using phenobarbital more in that that environment. So that comfort level is increasing, I think, especially in emergency medicine and in critical care. Right. right. Yeah. So we've got two two of the big ones, and let's maybe tackle one more, and then we can chat about uh, actually a mushroom that you can get at the grocery store that also has some toxicity that, that we kind of briefly discussed before we uh, launched off today. So what's our number three uh, culprit on our top, top well, FBI list? I would be completely remiss coming from Oregon, not bringing up psilocybin. Um, as some people may know, um, an election or so ago, Oregon voted uh, with measure 109 to allow an exploratory commission to uh, see if psilocybin, a hallucinogenic mushroom, can be used for therapy for a variety of purposes, including general anxiety disorder, PTSD, uh, even for major depression, um, of which there is, I will grant, um, some support in the literature, but I would consider most of the studies that are out there to be kind of pilot studies. Um, I'm not a big fan of people voting to use medicinals, um, but I don't think psilocybin in all itself is that terribly dangerous. Certainly no one dies from psilocybin use, but certainly there are people who probably shouldn't be using it. So rather than you think the day after we voted this in, everyone was going out and buying magic mushrooms, they weren't. There was, it took a while for a commission uh, to be put together, uh, which was a subgroup under the American Oregon Health Authority, um, uh, representatives certainly from, if you would call it the industry, and from advocates and some professors at the Oregon Health Science University themselves and addiction medicine to kind of hammer out the rules for this. And they're still working on it. I think they've put out a preliminary draft on uh, what should or should not be done. Um, I think the big question that remains an answer is who are these practitioners, because they're not doctors, that would be allow you to facilitate an experience with psilocybin. Now, all that being said, there certainly is no shortage of people going out there and using psilocybin for its hallucinogenic properties to, quote, get high. Um, and most of them have a variety of good and sometimes bad experiences where they have distortions of color and light and sound and 
higher appreciation of music and a variety of things we usually call synesthesia, where you can like hear colors or um, variety of cross-linked um, inputs to your uh, sensory. Um, in general, most of people do this in the private of their home or somewhere safe and they have uh, an experience and it goes on and they don't call the poison center and they don't come to the emergency department or the healthcare system. But every once in a while, someone does this and they have a severe panic attack um, and they're brought in. And in general, I think most appropriate thing is just kind of get them calmed down, um, get them in a room where it's quiet. If there's a music or something they like to listen to, they can do that. Um, and I try not to do a bunch of labs or work them up for altered mental status. At least that's our advice to the poison center. I just kind of let them finish their psychedelic experience. Some of them are so panicky that they may need a touch of a benzodiazepine to kind of calm them down or even get them to sleep through the remainder of the physiologic effects of, of the mushroom. Um, but in general, we don't see a lot of it in the emergency department itself. And I don't know what's going to happen as we sort of certify these uh, providers who are going to be able to do this uh, sort of therapy with psilocybin now. We're the only state that's statewide. I understand there's a couple of cities around the country that have also explored this. And certainly there's research both out of Harvard and Hopkins that are looking into this. So um, I'm keeping an open mind to see where it goes. But again, I don't know if we should vote on which drugs are should be allowed on the market or not allowed on the market. But I certainly don't see it as a drug that needs to be criminalized because it's not increasing criminal activity. No, I, I agree. And uh, we did see a little bit of uptake uh, or uptick in psilocybin uh, exposures in the emergency department setting. Um, there's some data or some people who are using it for the management of opioid use disorder. Uh, and so we did see a little bit of an uptick there. But again, most of these people, you know, um, they'd come in, they'd be We'd put them in a quiet room, you know, we'd give them some benzos if needed. And, and most of the time um, they'd recover fairly, re you know, readily without any further intervention, but certainly still a pretty important mushroom to know about. Um, can you find psilocybin in the wild? Is this a mushroom that can be uh, foraged or is it mostly that this is, you know, part of the, the drug trade? Oh, no, no, it, it grows pretty much anywhere that, Mushrooms grow in the wet woods and whatnot. Um, people certainly can either have their own grow operation in their basement with a grow light and proper care, uh, but a lot of people just go out and just pick uh, both uh, that mushroom. There's a couple other mushrooms that have also psilocin or psilocybin in it. Like there's one called the Big Laughing Gym, which is a gymnophilus mushroom that tends to grow on fallen, uh, decaying wood. Um, and again, this is out there and I think there are people who know it. These are, it's a little different group of people. These are not the foraging for food group of people who tend to do a lot of research and go out with guides who have some experience. These are people who are quite amateur, uh, in their collecting and, and just it's hit and miss. Um, I, I mean, I mean, it's possible these mushrooms don't look 
too much like the Amanita phylloides or the Smithiana, but it's possible every once in a while that you pick the wrong thing and get into some serious trouble with damage to one of your organs. So there's our top three mushrooms on our most wanted list. I had an interesting um, uh, a mushroom. I do most of my foraging for mushrooms um, in the grocery store, which seems like a fairly safe place to do it. Um, I love mushrooms and enjoy eating them. Um, and I recently discovered that shiitake mushrooms actually uh, have a uh, proclivity for some people um, when eaten raw or undercooked to produce a flagellate-like rash, almost similar to what we see with citrus um, in, in sun exposure for some individuals. Uh, do you have any experience with that, with that mushroom, with shiitakes and, and uh, this new, this, this rash uh, kind of syndrome? Yeah, I've read about it. There's been some sporadic case reports of that. I think most of these are self-limited. I think it's probably underreported because people show up and, you know, they say I have a rash and we do what we usually do with people with a rash. We give them an antihistamine or steroid cream sometimes and say, go home and see if it gets better. And they usually are quite self-limited and get better since you're not eating the, the mushroom anymore. I mean, people may tell folks that they're allergic to the mushrooms. I'm not sure it's a true allergy uh, event that occurs, but, um, it's kind of like a, an odd dermatitis syndrome. I think most people can eat shiitake. I guess if you have this rash, you probably ought to think twice about doing it again, or at least not eating them raw, I guess is probably the, the caution I would put out there. I think that's great advice. And Dr. Horowitz, this has been an incredibly interesting and informative discussion. Um, I know you sent me a number of different resources. I'm going to post them in the show notes. Um, lots of different resources on, on toxic mushrooms and some plants. Um, any resources that you'd like to highlight, especially for both medical or non-medical providers on you know, mushroom identification or management of mushroom toxicity? Well, probably the biggest one as a poison center director or associate director now um, is use your local poison center. This is why we have local regional poison centers and there's not just a 1-800 number somewhere. We, we know what's in our backyards, in our states, in our environments. And what grows in Michigan may not be what grows in Portland. It may not be what grows um, you know, in Massachusetts. So utilize your poison center. It's an 800 number. Uh, it's free. There's experts that understand not just local mushrooms, but local plants that have variation from location to location. I don't think there's any one text or article or online service like up to date that will be able to help you as much as the experienced toxicologist. I can't agree more with that. And, uh, you know, it's important to know your regional point, you know, there's a national number, 1-800-222-1222 in here in the United States. You know, I know in Europe, they have um, similar um, uh, programs. You, there's no better advice than reaching out to the experts when you know, you're dealing with these kind of, uh, kind of exposures. So thank you again, Dr. Horowitz. Again, incredibly interesting, very informative. Um, this is, you know, I'm a toxicology nerd. So this is right in my 
you know, lane um, in interest. I hope that our listeners uh, find it to be similarly interesting. We'd certainly love to have you on again, maybe talk about some toxic plants uh, next time. All right. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, to our listeners, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the World Extreme Medicine podcast, please subscribe, like and share. And if you want to meet lots of other risk-taking, rule-bending and inspirational people, then you need to be in Edinburgh on the 19th to the 21st of November for this year's conference. Tickets are on sale now. Go to extrememedicineexpo.com to find out more. <laughs>